In episode 35, we began our terrifying trail of County Durham. A historic county with breathtaking scenery, award-winning attractions, and 11 million visitors from all over the world each and every year. And then there's the darker side. The murder, torture, betrayal and death that has left an eternal stain on this county, ensuring that there are so, so many places believed to be haunted. And it's time for us to take a look at some more of them. So tonight join me as we continue our ghost tour of County Durham. Welcome to episode 36 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location, and of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week, we continue our ghost trail, and once again, ask just how haunted is County Durham? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. The Shakespeare Tavern This pub in Sadler Street in Durham city centre was built in 1190 AD and at one point in its long history, this building was the location of a theatre's box office, hence the name. It's now a popular drinking establishment, and offers traditional pub food and real ales. It also has a new gin bar on the first floor. The Shakespeare is most famous in the region for its spirits, and I'm not talking about the ones on offer in the gin bar, I mean its ghosts and its ghouls which has led to it being almost impossible to read or hear anything about the Shakespeare, without it being followed by the most haunted pub in Durham. There are reports of people's shirts getting tugged and people claim to hear footsteps running up and down the staircase. Ghosts are said to follow you into the toilets and whisper in your ear. Drinkers have been sat on the toilet when the lock on the inside of the door has unlocked itself and the door has swung violently open, exposing them to anybody else who may be in there. Paranormal groups have investigated the Shakespeare, and it has not disappointed. In March 2020, just before Covid shut all of the pubs in Britain down for a period of time, local newspaper The Chronicle spoke to George Metcalf, the manager of the Shakespeare, and this is what he had to tell them about the ghosts of this near 1,000-year-old pub in an article entitled Dark Figures, Footsteps and Screaming, Inside Durham's Most Haunted Bar, The Shakespeare. The article read, From tugged shirts, unexplained screaming and mysterious footsteps, punters at this Durham City bar 
could be in for more than a quiet pint. Tourists regularly stop in to find out more about the ghost stories that haunt this Saddler Street drinking spot, while it is also a stop on the city's ghost tour. While some people may be reluctant to work in such a haunted premises, manager George Metcalf has worked at this bar for a decade and has experienced some of the ghoulish goings on. George said, There's all sorts, from people being shushed on stairways to shirts being tugged, dark figures being there, then they disappear. Now and then you get the odd screaming and shouting, but there'll be nothing there. There's footsteps that are sometimes running up and down the stairs when there's nobody there. There are sudden gusts of wind when there shouldn't be, as if there should be a window open, but the window isn't open. There is a sewing machine out the back, and the pedal seems to want to start working all on its own. We hear the distinctive squeak it makes when it's pressed. There's just a very eerie feeling here. Although he's unsure quite what it is, George believes there is at least one or two ghosts walking the corridors. I think there's something in the cellar, because I went down there and it felt like somebody touched the back of my shirt, even though I was alone and the door was shut behind me. I turned around straight away and said who was that? And they said, no one. Crossgate Crossgate is one of the oldest streets in Durham and is the main route west from the city centre. Crossgate begins by the intersection of the North Road and South Street by Framwellgate Bridge. It heads west to the remains of the medieval Neville's Cross, from which the name of the street derives. Neville's Cross is named for the Battle of Neville's Cross, which took place during the Second War of the Scottish Independence on the 17th of October 1346. It took place half a mile, which is 800 metres to the west of Durham. An invading Scottish army of 12,000, led by King David II, was defeated with heavy loss by an English army of approximately six or 7,000 men, led by Ralph Neville, Lord Neville. The battle was named after an Anglo-Saxon stone cross that stood on the hill where the Scots made their stand. After the victory, Ralph Neville paid to have a new cross erected to commemorate the day, and this is Neville's cross. The cross was largely destroyed in 1589, and is described in the Rites of Durham in 1593. In 1903, it was moved to its current position. In 2021, to commemorate the 675th anniversary of the battle, work was undertaken by Durham County Council in partnership with the City of Durham Parish Council to preserve the appearance of the Neville's Cross Monument for future generations. The Grade 1 listed Church of St Margaret of Antioch on Crossgate was first established in the mid-12th century to serve the borough. There are two ghost stories associated with the ancient street of Crossgate, and both involve female phantoms. A grey lady used to be reported by people travelling Crossgate Perth in horse-drawn carriages. A lady would be clutching a baby wrapped in a blanket close to her chest, and she would appear distraught and in desperate need of help. She would hitch a ride in the horse and carriage from anyone willing to help her, and tell them that she needs to get to the site of the Battle of Neville's Cross. At the point of reaching the location, she would simply disappear. No one knows who this woman was, but it's thought that she must be the widow of a man killed in the Battle of 1346. Equally as unclear as her identity is whether this ghost story is true, or simply a story made up and passed down from generation to generation, as she has never been reported since the demise of the horse-drawn carriage and the invention of the motor car. Another female figure who is said to haunt the area, and who has been seen in recent years, is another mysterious woman whose identity is unclear. But mediums who claim to make contact with her say that this was a Victorian girl who worked in a workhouse. She was thrown down some stairs to her death. Where these stairs were, or why she chooses to roam Crossgate, is unknown. Durham Castle Durham Castle, along with the breathtaking cathedral, are very much icons of the city and county of Durham. The present castle was built in 1072 as one of the first fortified castles commissioned by William the Conqueror during his Harrying of the North. The building work was overseen by Waltheof, the Earl of Northumberland, and the Mott and Bailey Castle, much favoured by the Normans, 
was built with the purpose of defending the peninsula formed by the meander in the River Weir. The previous year William Walsher had been appointed Bishop of Durham and the castle was to be his seat, as the office of the Bishop of Durham was appointed by the King to exercise royal authority on his behalf. When Wolfiov was executed in 1075, Walsher was also appointed Earl, becoming the first Prince Bishop. Bishop Walsher had a hall built upon the site of the current Great Hall. He also built the Undercroft and the Norman Chapel. Walsher was a good man, but proved to be an incapable leader. This contributed to his murder in Gateshead in 1081. The lands ruled by the bishops became known as the County Palatine of Durham, a defensive zone between England and the Northumbria Scottish border. Due to its remoteness from London, the County Palatine was ruled over by the Prince Bishop who possessed the powers of a king, including having the authority to hold their own parliaments, raise their own armies, administer their own laws, and even mint their own coins. In the year 1300, Prince Bishop Anthony Beck said there are two kings in England, namely the Lord King of England wearing a crown in sign of his regality, and the Lord Bishop of Durham wearing a mitre in place of a crown in sign of his regality in the Diocese of Durham. Beck built the present Great Hall in 1284, which was then extended by Bishop Thomas Hatfield in 1350, making it the largest Great Hall in Britain, until it was shortened at the end of the 15th century by Bishop Richard Fox. However, it's still 14 metres high and over 30 metres long. Henry VIII diminished the Prince Bishop's power in 1536, and this was further reduced during and after the English Civil War. In the Tudor period, Bishop Cuthbert Tunstall added the chapel in 1540 and the galleries which bear his name. Durham Castle suffered considerable dilapidation during the English Civil War, and when England became a Commonwealth in 1649, Durham Castle was seized by Oliver Cromwell and sold to the Lord Mayor of London. With the English Restoration in 1660, the castle was handed back to the Bishops of Durham. Improvements were carried out by the then Bishop John Cozen, who constructed the Black Staircase, and his successor, Bishop Nathaniel Crewe. When the University of Durham was founded in 1837, the Bishop of Durham, William Van Mildert, gifted Durham Castle to the University. The keep, then a ruin, was rebuilt in 1840 by the architect Anthony Salvin to the same floor plan as the original Norman keep, to provide student accommodation. In the late 1920s, it was discovered that the northwest corner of the castle was in imminent danger of sliding into the River Weir. Urgent action was taken to install new foundations. The castle remains in the care of Durham University to this day. For anybody who visits Durham Castle, one of the most memorable moments is your first glimpse of the magnificent Black Staircase. It is named for the dark oak of which it is made, and it is 57 feet high. It is one of the most impressive staircases of its time anywhere in England. And what's more, it appears that the Black Staircase may have a dark secret. The ghostly figure of a woman has been witnessed gliding up the staircase on countless occasions since the 18th century. Local legend tells that this is the spirit of Isabella, the wife of William Van Mildert. She fell down the staircase breaking her neck. She is also seen in the Norman Gallery, but is only seen from the knees up. This is due to the difference in the floor levels as a result of the rebuilding in 1840. A less well-known ghost story is that of Frederick Corbin. In 2009, I spoke with David Butler who ran a ghost walk in Durham, and he told me of the tragic circumstances which led to Frederick haunting Durham Castle forevermore. He said, Frederick John Corpman was one of the first students at the new University of Durham in the early 19th century when the castle became University College and he lived in the highest room at the top of the Black Staircase, called by other students the Crow's Nest. As the time for his final exams came closer, he became increasingly worried. He took the exams and waited with trepidation for the results. Then, just the same as today, Degree results were pinned on the notice board outside the University Library on Palace Green, and Frederick hurried to look at them. The results list for each subject showed those with first-class degrees at the top, and then the other classes of degree in order below. If a name does not appear on the list, then it means a total failure. Frederick could not find his name on the list, 
and went back to his room in deep despair. After a period of agitated thought, he rushed from the room and down the black staircase. Ignoring everyone around him, he ran across Palace Green to the cathedral. He climbed the steps to the top of the tower and threw himself off. The ghost of Frederick Copeman is unusual, in that it is not visible, but his ghostly footsteps can be heard pacing backwards and forwards across the floor of the room at the top of the black staircase, reliving his last tormented moments alive. Then with a crash, the door is thrown open and footsteps are heard running down the wooden stairs. Since Frederick Copeman's death, and to this day, the cathedral tower is kept locked when degree results are posted up. The Crow's Nest room is now never used as a student room. It is only used as a stationary store. But the ironic twist in the story is that when the results lists were examined, it was discovered that the sheet pinned above his had accidentally covered up Frederick Copeman's name at the very top of the list. He had actually gained a first class degree. The Flaswell As the northeast became Christianised, the freshwater springs that came miraculously from the ground became regarded as holy wells, and they had long been considered holy places by the pagans before them. Many of them were dedicated to saints who were considered to be the miracle workers to thank for these impossible sources of pure, clean water that seemed to spring from the ground. In County Durham, there were believed to have been at one time up to 30 holy wells across the county. The best preserved of these is the Holy Well at Walsenham, which is dedicated to the saints Ilric and Godric, and has a stone byre over it. Very little is known about St Ilric's life, except that he devoted his life to God, being a monk from Durham who became a hermit, living in isolation in the woods. For the final 18 years of his life, he lived together in the woods by Walsenham, which means the place of the wolves, with Godric, where he taught him how to be a hermit. Until Ailric, his task complete, fell ill. For 15 days, Godric nursed him, and when the old man died on the 5th of October 1107, the monks from Durham collected his body for burial, and he was canonised with a festival. St Godric was born to Aylward and Edwena in Walpole in Norfolk in around 1065. He was the eldest of three children, he was a hermit, a merchant, and famously performed 200 miracles during his life. Following his death, he was a popular medieval saint, although he was never formally canonised. He died on the 21st of May 1170 at Fingal, in his hermitage, on the banks of the River Weir. He was 105 years old. The Galilee Well is found beneath the Galilee Chapel. This chapel is at the west end of Durham Cathedral and was built between 1175 and 1189 over the top of the well. There is a stone wellhead on a footpath beneath one of the west walls of the cathedral, but it appears that the well is now completely dry. St Cuthbert's Well is situated on a steep bank from the cathedral down to the River Weir and is incredibly difficult to get to. For anybody who makes a tricky journey, they are greeted by a Grade 2 listed well, with what Lawrence Hunt described in his book Ancient Healing and Holy Wells of County Durham as the largest stone surround of any holy well in the county. It bears the inscription Fons Cuthbert and has a date of 1600, Fons being the Latin word for fresh water. St Mary's Well once flowed into the weir from its south bank beneath South Street, but it has been dry for centuries. St Oswald's Well is directly beneath St Oswald's Church on New Elvet, and is dedicated for the saint. Much of its stonework was destroyed by vandals towards the end of the 19th century. Other holy wells across the county are lost forever. They are now just names on a map, which gives us a reminder that there was once a well there, a truly sacred spot. These include Holywell Burn at Willington and Holywell House at Staindrop. But now we get onto the haunted well, Flaswell. It is accessible by the steps at the top of Mowbray Street and Flash Street. It was used as recently as the winter of 1963 by the local people who drank the crystal clear spring water. Today it's completely overgrown and totally dry. Many of the holy wells are now dry due to a combination of mining impact on the water levels and development across the region leading to streams being redirected. The Flash Well is beneath Red Hills, the Durham Miners Association Hall. They are currently looking at renovating their building 
and restoring this historic well is also part of their plans. The word flas is an old northern word meaning marshy, and given this was a freshwater spring, this would make perfect sense as the land around it would have been damp. The ghost that haunts the area around the flas well is called Jane Ramshaw, and was sadly lured from her house late at night in 1789 and murdered, and she now haunts the damp dark track where the well is found beneath the miner's hall. She is unable to rest, as her murderer was never brought to justice. This tale appears to have been first written about in the book Sacred Water, Holy Wells and Water Law in Britain and Ireland, which was published in 1985 and was written by Janet and Colin Board. But Peter Jeffries added to their story by claiming that many years later a soldier, mortally wounded in a battle overseas, confessed to her murder with his dying breath. The Manor House Hotel The Manor House Hotel in Ferry Hill was built at the end of the 16th century as a farmer's dwelling. The building has a fairly unremarkable history. It's changed hands a number of times, and continued life as a domestic home. In 1913, the vicar of St Luke's Church, Reverend Thomas Lomax, had the manor converted into an orphanage. A local doctor bought the building a few years later, and it reverted back to a private home. In 1989, the building was sold once again, and the new owners opened the manor house as a hotel. Despite the seemingly quiet past of the Manor House Hotel, the building holds a number of frightening secrets, and terrifying occurrences take place on an all-too-frequent basis. The most common sighting is the full spectral apparition of a tall woman seen on a staircase by visitors, and more often by staff, who have nicknamed her Betty. Betty is often reported to be weeping, and mediums have claimed that Betty is endlessly searching for a young child who vanished when she was working at the building. There have been skeletal remains of children and babies found buried in the hotel's garden, and it's believed that one of these poor innocent children is Betty's missing child. Why these tiny children are buried in the garden and who killed them is a mystery that may never be solved. Visitors to room 4 have complained of a strong smell of tobacco, most commonly in the early hours of the morning, usually between 3am and 4am. The owner's son has claimed to see the ghosts of children in room 6. He says they tell him that they want to play with him. He has said that they cover their eyes and count to 10. And then, they chase him. A dark figure has been seen walking through room 6. And on a number of occasions, a child's crying has been heard in this room in the middle of the night. Visitors and members of staff have reported that room 7 has suddenly felt very oppressive. This is followed by a dark shadow, looking to resemble a heavy-set tall man appearing in the corner of the room, never moving, then simply vanishing. With his disappearance, the oppressive atmosphere lifts. One guest to room 7 with no knowledge of the unusual happenings at the hotel had a lampshade thrown at them and missed them by inches. On a separate occasion a maid was in the bathroom cleaning when she was pushed hard in the back. Upon turning around she found she was the only person in the room. She'd locked the door behind her when she entered the room, and it had remained locked. Room 8 has experienced some extreme poltergeist activity. Dark shadows are commonly seen moving swiftly through the room, and during a seance night at the hotel, a medium claimed that a murder had once taken place in room 8. Terrifyingly, the owner's son was asleep in room 8 when something grabbed him by the throat, he was then picked up and thrown from his bed. He ran downstairs in hysterics to see his mother. She comforted him, assuring him that it was just a bad dream. But then, she looked at his throat and found bright red finger impressions. This little boy now won't go upstairs on his own. He sits at the bottom of the stairs waiting for an adult to go up with him. All of the rooms in the hotel have had reports of the TVs turning themselves on and off during the night. This was captured on film during the most haunted episode recorded at the Manor House Hotel. It is a truly frightening episode with all manners of creaks and lights being heard and seen. The show's medium, the late Derek Acora, appears to become possessed by an evil spirit which in life murdered children and hid their bodies in the garden. And presenter Yvette Fielden was scared witless when an unseen ghost whispered into her ear. 
Darren Ritson, who is a local paranormal investigator and author on a number of books on the subject including Ghost Hunter, Haunted Newcastle, and co-author of the South Shields Poltergeist, investigated the Manor House Hotel in 2005. When I was writing my book Ghostly County Durham, I spoke with him about his unforgettable night there and he told me. On Saturday the 17th of September 2005, a paranormal group and a few selected guests carry out an investigation there. And it has to be one of the most eventful I have attended a date as a ghost hunter. We arrived at about 8.30pm on the night in question and we were shown to the most haunted will in the building, rooms 7 and 8. We made ourselves comfortable and prepared for the night's investigation. We carried out baseline tests and then we set up a trigger object in room 7 and a flower tray experiment in room 8. This was a long plastic tub of flour which was placed on a sturdy surface and objects were placed into the flour. In this case we used crystals and a red lollipop as young spirit children allegedly frequent this area. By placing these objects into the tray and leaving a crucifix as the trigger object locked off in room 7 we hoped we might achieve some spiritual interaction with these objects. Ultimately they may be moved, indicating some form of ghostly presence. We then split into two groups, and while Lee Stevenson, Suzanne Hitchinson, Fiona Vipond and I went to room 8 to investigate, Drew Bartley and his group stayed in room 7. Our investigation began with us settling down, calling out to the atmosphere and asking for phenomena while at the same time recording it with my dictation machine. For a while nothing seemed to happen, until quite a while into the vigil, we all started to hear the odd click or tap. Some of the investigators started to feel funny feelings, and the distinct smell of vomit was smelt by all at one point in the vigil, which is a commonly reported occurrence by all accounts. After the split vigils, we regrouped back in room 8, where earlier on it had been reported that the beam barriers that were placed on one of the doors had been turned around while the investigators were all sitting on the bed. It was there we decided to hold a seance. This it seemed was indeed the room to investigate thoroughly. We caught some light anomalies on the night vision video camera and there was a definite feeling of something or someone around us. This was agreed by all present. Drew and I monitored the seance proceedings while the rest of the group sat in the circle and conducted the seance. Prior to the seance beginning, a photograph was taken of the flower tray which showed 10 crystals, a red lollipop and flat undisturbed flower. When everyone was ready and comfortable, Suzanne proceeded to conduct the seance and it wasn't long before she was aware of spirit presences. She picked up on two children, a boy and a girl, and said they were related. Fiona then asked the children if they would like to take a lollipop. Fiona then said that they were welcome to take the one that we had left as a trigger object in the flower. After a minute or so, I shone my torch onto the flower tray to see if there'd been any movement with our objects and I was not disappointed. I was stunned to see that the flower had indeed been disturbed, as if someone had literally dragged two or three of their fingers through the flower, leaving it piled up at one side of the tray. This flower had seriously been disturbed. But then the real shock came, as we all noticed that the red lollipop had completely vanished from within the tray. It must be stressed that I was in fact monitoring the seance from the area, so I know that nobody had touched it. Drew was on the other side of the room and everyone else was sitting in the seance. So who took the lollipop? It could only have been one of the spirit children. This was a first for all of us. For all the trigger object experiments that we have set up over the years, granted, some do indeed move from their positions, but only slightly or an inch at the most. But this one had vanished completely and was taken away from under all of our noses and was never seen again. I can assure you, nobody touched the flower tree objects and everyone turned out their pockets and was checked for flower on their hands and their clothes, just as a precautionary measure. Everyone was clean, but I knew this would be the case. It is interesting to add that flower patches and flower stains were later found on the carpet near the room door. This patch was the identical size and shape of the lollipop. We also found flower in the bathroom, outside on the landing and down the stairs in the corridor. Nobody had been in these areas. We can only conclude that it was taken from the flower tray by the children set to haunt this area, out of the actual room, into the corridor and down the stairs. We all know that no one living had actually left the room while we were there. This incident baffled us all somewhat. 
and we are all convinced that we experienced some truly ghostly activity. We were so impressed. We spent the rest of the night talking it through and trying to locate the lollipop stick. We never found it. So what a night of investigating we'd had. It certainly proved very interesting indeed, and yet again, some of the best results were ascertained to date. Although the malevolent entity that is said to reside in room 8 did not manifest for us in the way we had hoped, the spirit children really did us proud. Seddersfeld Hall The medieval rectory in Sedgefield burned down in the late 18th century and was replaced by a new rectory constructed in 1792 by Bishop Barrington. It was built as a rectangular stone-built two-storey house in the Georgian style. In 1974, the building, now known as Seddersfeld Hall, was purchased by Sedgefield Town Council and is today used as a community hall by Sedgefield Community Association. And of course, it's got its very own ghost story. The pickled parson of Sedgefield haunts Seddersfeld Hall. 19th century author John Sykes wrote about the Phantom in 1833 in his self-published chronicle, Historical Register of Remarkable Events, which have occurred in Northumberland and Durham, Newcastle-upon-Tyne and Berwick-upon-Tweed. It read, December 31st, about two o'clock in the morning, a fire broke out in one of the lodging rooms in the rectory house at Sedgefield in the county of Durham, which consumed the greatest part of the building before it was extinguished. By the activity of the servants in the neighbourhood, the most valuable part of the furniture was preserved. The superstitious and vulgar inhabitants of Sedgefield were, previously to the burning down of the rectory house, alarmed by an apparition denominated the Pickled Parson, which for many years was presumed to infest the neighbourhood of the rector's hall, making night hideous. The supposed origin of the tale is attributed to the cunning of a rector's wife, whose husband having died about the week before the tithes, which are generally let off to farmers and the rents paid on the 20th of December, became due. She concealed his death by salting his body in a private room. Her scheme succeeded, and the next day she made the decease of the rector public. Since the fire, the apparition has not been seen. Sykes doesn't mention who the parson was who was pickled by his wife in order to receive 10% of his annual salary, and there's been some debate to his identity but historians believe it to be the Reverend James Gamage, rector of Sedgefield in County Durham from 1718 until his death in 1747 at the age of 56, at which point he was pickled by his wife Mary. Sykes said that the apparition hasn't been seen since the fire, at which point the new hall was built, but has he? Some have claimed in the years since to see the sorry shade of the parson wander in the half mile between the site of the rectory and St Edmund's Church, the legend has taken such a hold in Sedgefield that there is even an inn around the corner from Seddersfeld Hall called the Pickle Parson of Sedgefield. Whitworth Hall Hotel in Deer Park In 1183, Hugh de Pousset, the Bishop of Durham, ordered the compilation of the Bolden Buke. It has been called the Doomsday Book of the North, and it was designed to assist the administration of the vast diocesan estates. The estate of Whitworth was included, and the entry read, Thomas de Ackle and his descendants were known as the Lords of Whitworth, and they would own the estate of Whitworth, which was at the time roughly four square miles, for the next three centuries. It is likely that Thomas de Ackle's son, who was also called Thomas, may have built the first dwelling on the site where the hotel now stands in around 1260. Thomas Whitworth, the last Lord of Whitworth, inherited the estate on the 10th of November 1355, aged only 13. He went overseas to war in 1737, fighting in Spain and France, before returning home many years later. He died childless, and what happened after his death has been lost to history, as Whitworth has mentioned no more until 1420, by which time it is in the possession of the Neville family. The Nevilles held the Whitworth estate until 1569, when it became forfeited to the Crown, on account of their involvement in the rising of the North an unsuccessful plot by the Catholics of Northern England against Elizabeth I. In 1652, the manor at Whitworth was purchased by Mark Shafto, a lawyer from Newcastle-upon-Tyne. For over 300 years, 12 successive Shafto generations lived at Whitworth. The most notable being Robert Shafto, better known as Bonnie Bobby Shafto. The Shafto family had seats at Bavington Hall, 
Beamish Hall and Windlestone Hall, as well as Whitworth. Bobby held the manor at Whitworth from 1742 to 1797. In 1760, at the age of 30, Bobby Shafto was elected MP for Durham City, a position he held for eight years, at which time he was succeeded by Sir Thomas Clavering. Bobby Shafto died in November of 1797 and is buried in the Shafto family crypt beneath the floor of the Whitworth Church. The Shaftos had turned Whitworth Hall into one of the finest family mansions in England, but it was largely destroyed by fire in 1876, with only the library and the kitchens being saved. The building lay in ruins until 1891, when the original three-storey house was rebuilt as the current two-storey building. Whitworth Hall was sold by the Shafto family in October 1981 to a Mr Pamaby, and it remained as a private dwelling until 1997, at which point it was sold again, and the Grade 2 listed hall was converted into Whitworth Hall Hotel. One of the oldest parts of the building, the library, is now the library restaurant and is a hive of paranormal activity. A man has been seen sat at a table in the corner of the restaurant. He appears solid, but vanishes when approached. Books have also fallen off the shelves in the room, on one occasion striking a guest on the head. The corridor leading to the restaurant is also believed to be haunted, and staff have reported at times that it will inexplicably go so cold that you can see your own breath. Room 6 appears to be a standard hotel room, lacking a remarkable or bloody history, yet staff feel uneasy in room 6, and are reluctant to go into the room alone. Unusual sounds have been heard by guests in the early hours of the morning, reporting a sound like coughing or choking coming from under the bed. In the Whitworth suite, staff members working alone have been horrified to hear the silence broken by footsteps, walking through the room before stopping as suddenly as they began. Lee Foster spent a night at Whitworth Hall Hotel in June 2007 as a guest of Northern Ghost Investigations. He told me of what he encountered in one area of the hotel that is not usually associated with ghostly happenings, the vault. The investigation of Whitworth Hall had been a disappointment in all of the rooms we'd spent time in. When we'd heard about the activity various staff had experienced over the years, the bar had been set, and I'd hoped to meet or even exceed this. The night seemed long during the paranormal void, even though my team tried to coax activity through various communication methods, such as calling out, table tipping, a seance, and divination, all with a heavy dose of patience, and all completely fruitless. I wanted to go down to the vault, as Whitworth Hall for me felt empty. This feeling trickled through the team as I sought out their views. After what seemed like an age, it was finally time for my team to visit the vault. Before entering, I had another look around outside. I love the sound of the night wind, as it rustles the old tall trees, and the fox calls, their screams lost in the darkness was eerily like a human's cry of distress. An old derelict watermill was nearby, so I had a quick look around it. The shallow river, a mere trickle of its former self, was no longer powerful enough to turn the large rusted water wheel or drive the seized up cogs and gears inside the small, dark, decrepit building. I felt quite sad to see that this little hidden treasure had become lost and irrelevant in the undergrowth. After I'd taken a few photographs I headed down the steps into the single-roomed underground vault that lay only a few metres away. The temperature inside the vault was mild. Water dripped slowly from the roof and splashed onto the damp floor with an irregular drip, drip, drip. Two fluorescent lights brightly flooded the vault while the team settled into place. At one end of the vault, a staircase rose up into the darkness and after a dozen steps was sealed off by the courtyard above. Presumably these stairs would have led up into a building from long ago. Perhaps the original Whitworth Hall. I set my camcorder up in the far corner of the vault while the rest of the team stood quietly and took in the atmosphere. I could hear nervous chatter while I prepared myself for this location. For the first time tonight, I finally found my senses, and for the first time on this investigation I felt on edge. I stood at the bottom of the dark staircase and hoped that this location would make up for the lack of activity we'd endured so far. When the bright lights were extinguished, darkness rushed in and swallowed us up. Pam, who's the team sensitive, called out for a spirit to come forth. She suggested that it could come down the stairs and touch one of us or show itself. In the darkness of the vault, I looked at the even darker void of the staircase behind me, and suddenly, I felt very unwelcome. 
A sense of foreboding pierced me from the cold, dark staircase. It was as if something had come down the stairs to find intruders in the room, and its anger emanated from the dark like a wave of fury. It was just as I sensed this, and I was about to speak, that Palm looked as though she was pushed. She grabbed fellow team member Bruce to steady herself. It happened again, and Palm asked whatever may be there to stop pushing her. Bruce spoke calmly, and explained why we were in the vault. Seconds ticked slowly by. I could see Pam, Bruce and the two guests, dimly picked out in the emergency light, huddled close together. A feeling of anger hung in the air. The sceptic in me searched for a reason, auto-suggestion, imagination, whatever was causing this feeling was quite powerful, as everybody in the room appeared on edge. So I reached my hand into the dark void of the stairwell, and asked for whatever may be there to take it. The atmosphere appeared to change, from one of anger, to one of silent contemplation. I had hoped that something would grab my hand, but at the same time wondered what I would do if something did. The atmosphere continued to lighten, but the darkness did not relinquish any of its secrets, and after a few minutes the team decided to call an end to this location, much to the guests' relief. We only spent a total of 15 minutes in the vault, but for me it was the best part of the night. The lights chased away the darkness ready for the next team, and we continued on to our next location. Personally, the vault was the only place where I felt like I got something that questioned my scepticism. The other locations gave me nothing, but that's not to say that other people on other occasions don't get anything here. Like a lot of things when it comes to the paranormal, it's all personal experience. The NGI team that night felt that a number of unusual things occurred during the night between the various small teams and locations, but the spirits were not playing with us on this night. Was my experience real? I don't know. It felt real, but as always when you look back and time blurs the memory, you try to rationalise it, which in turn makes the experience feel less real, and did it actually happen? We left Whitworth Hall at around 4am. A large hare decided to race my car down the long dark tree line winding lane. It jumped back and forth in front of my car like a kamikaze pilot. Eventually the hare decided my car was too fast. It jumped into a driveway and watched us drive off into the darkness as we all headed home. Redworth Hall Hotel Redworth Hall is a stunning Jacobean country house dating back to 1693. Little is recorded of the early history of the building, but by the year 1740 it had been abandoned. Robert Surtees acquired the old manor house and estate at Redworth and carried out substantial rebuilding work in 1744. Incorporating some of the 17th century fabric, a great hall was built, as well as a wonderful ornate staircase. He created a grand mansion, two storeys high, to which his nephew and heir, also called Robert Surtees, added further improvements in 1820. The Surtees family lived at Redworth Hall until Henry Surtees passed away in 1955. The building was then used as a school, before being converted into a luxury hotel. Today, Redworth Hall Hotel is certainly a beautiful building, with almost a hundred lavishly decorated bedrooms, two restaurants and a health and leisure club. However, after dark, the hotel takes on a completely different appearance. Surrounded by 150 acres of dark woodland and moorland, the remote location is extremely unsettling. The floorboards are ominously creaky, and it comes as no surprise to some guests when they find out that the hotel is haunted by a number of ghosts. The land on which Redworth Hall was built is a site upon which many battles took place during the English Civil War. Many people lost their lives right here, and this has been attributed to some of the violent poltergeist activity within the cellar of the hotel. Footsteps have been heard by terrified members of staff when nobody has been in the cellar at the time. A team of paranormal investigators were in the cellar in July of 2007, and one investigator narrowly avoided injury when a glass was thrown across the room missing his head by inches. Candles and stones were also thrown, followed by the door opening and slamming shut on demand. The Great Hall is believed to be the haunt of the spirit of a young girl. It's unknown who she is or why she haunts this particular room. Many people have witnessed the hazy figure of her standing before them, motionless. Then she simply fades away. Other guests have felt someone tugging at their clothes and when they've turned around there is nobody there. One of the spirits that remains at Redworth Hall Hotel has been identified as one of the Lord Surtees, 
although we're not sure of a first name. He was the owner of the estate during the late 18th century. He was a cruel man. He had a mentally handicapped son and he resented his son for being born this way. He would never let him step foot outside the hall due to the shame he felt and he would chain his son by his neck to the fireplace in the Great Hall. The spirit of Lord Surtees has been experienced throughout the hall, as have the cries of anguish of his son, who died before his 20th birthday, having never experienced the outside world. There is another ghost at Redworth Hall Hotel with links to the same Lord Surtees. This ghost is of a pretty young scullery maid who had an affair with Surtees, perhaps foolishly believing that he loved her the same way she loved him. She fell pregnant, and it was not long before Surtees' wife found out. Within a week, the scullery maid was found dead at the foot of the ornate staircase. It was said that she committed suicide by throwing herself down the stairs. But murder by Lord Surtees, his wife, or the pair of them, seems much more likely. Guests staying in room 9 have awoken in the early hours of the morning, commonly between 2am and 3am to see a dark figure standing at the bottom of the bed watching them sleep. As soon as a light is turned on by the panicked guest, the figure vanishes. Some guests have been so frightened that they've packed up their belongings and left in the middle of the night, rather than risk trying to go back to sleep in room 9. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod where you will see photos galore relating to our ghost trail of County Durham. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com Feedback, location, suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. This episode's coming soon. If you'd like to support the show, you could sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. If you'd like to get early access to episodes, as well as access to exclusive episodes where you can join me on an actual paranormal investigation and hear the audio as it happened, you can gain access right now for less than the price of a pint. There's eight episodes of this nature waiting for you right now. There's also a tier where not only do you get all of that, but you can get yourself some exclusive How Haunted merch, as well as join me on an actual paranormal investigation via live stream and talk to me throughout. You'll see what I see and hear what I hear. Perhaps we'll see a ghost. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod to find out more. If you aren't a fan of Patreon or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation at the podcast, why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in this podcast episode description and over on the website. I'm running a competition where two winners can get a signed copy of one of my new books. There is a copy of Illustrated Tales of Northumberland which was released in February and a copy of Paranormal Northumberland which was released in May, up for grabs. In July, I will be walking 28 miles to raise money for Cancer Research UK in memory of my dear friend John, who lost his battle in 2017, aged only 34. To enter the competition, as well as supporting the charity. If you can afford to do so, please consider heading over to justgiven.com forward slash page, that's P-A-G-E, forward slash walk for, that's the number four, John, 2023, that's justgiven.com forward slash page, forward slash walk for John 2023. The link is in this podcast episode description. And sponsor me, whatever you can afford. Then just drop me an email at rob at howhaunted.com and I'll pop your name into the hat. I'll do the draw at the end of July and I'll ship the books out to the two lucky winners anywhere in the world. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out we'll continue our journey through Haunted County Durham, and we look at locations which include a mine, which is haunted by the ghost of a miner who was torn limb from limb 
when he got caught up in a water wheel. A waterfall where a singing lady glides across the water on clear, moonlit nights. In a 12th century castle which was built upon the site of a 1st century Roman fort. A ghostly Roman garrison who were massacred here are seen to this very day. But it's said that witnessing them will result in your own death shortly afterwards. But what else lies in store for us next time out? Let's find out together next week when we continue our ghost trail of County Durham. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe and join me next time when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted? Thank you.